My name is Toff Idris, and you're listening to me on Above and Beyond. Hi all, it's Mike Myers with another episode of Above and Beyond, brought to you by the Reengineering Australia Foundation we strive to engage, inspire and educate students, teachers and industry about the career pathway options that exist in the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics. We're driving to create the next generation of innovators who will build Australia's economic future. But to achieve this goal, it's essential to have students engage with industry as much as possible before leaving school, both as a method of building their career knowledge and to simplify the transition to the world of work. A transition which should be driven by the passions and skills of the students rather than be a somewhat random and last minute decision process. Today's podcast, we're going to explore some of the many career path options that exist in industries connected to subsea exploration. Our guest, Toff Idris, has an incredibly interesting story to tell. He spends 23 years in the Royal Australian Navy before making the transition to private enterprise his connections with subsea exploration continue. His experience in the Navy included serving as a marine engineer on two Oberon-class submarines and two stints in the Middle East area of operations, one as a Navy captain. Today, Toff is the Managing Director of JFD Australia, who deliver products and services into niche undersea industries which span both military and commercial diving sectors. I'm looking forward to hearing about the unique career journey he's travelled and the exciting career pathway options that students may have never considered or never known about, at least until today. Welcome, Toff. Thanks, Mike. Your experience in the Navy sounds like inc- incredibly interesting. What are some of the highlights of that the journey through the Navy and which of those components of the journey really had the greatest impact on your perspective on life? Well, firstly, can I just say really pleased to be with you here, Mike, and speaking with your audience. I've been blessed, as you say, I've had nearly 23 years in the Royal Australian Navy, and I guess there are three really particular times in the Navy where I really thought were very, very special. The firstly was becoming a submariner. You don't wake up one day and say, I want to become a submariner. You've got to go through some trials and tribulations, unfortunately. So about a year's worth of that, becoming a submariner, and then you get front up to the captain of the submarine squadron, and he gives you what's known as your dolphins. It's a very humbling ceremony, very low-keyed. Not a lot of fan fanfare, but but that's got to be one of the highlights of my career was to actually get my dolphins. Interestingly, the, the second highlight of my career had nothing to do with submarines. Um, my, my very last posting at sea was actually on, on board HMAS Anzac, which is a modern Anzac-class frigate. So it's a surface ship. And I was the engineer on board HMAS Anzac over in the Gulf. And so we spent seven months deployed to the North Arabian Gulf uh, in 2001, ran about when the 9-11 happened. So you can imagine we had a lot of excitement. We got asked to stay on. We were on station at the time. And so we stayed for another six weeks while 9-11 was unraveling itself across the world. And I guess the third most exciting part was um, I, I was really blessed in 2004 to be picked to go on a deployment to Iraq for seven months. Really, really unusual for a Navy captain to be deployed to the desert of Iraq. But that was really about helping coalition rebuild Iraq really as a country. So I was initially meant to go there with a bucket of money, literally a suitcase of money, and do some projects in a, in a province called Al-Hila. And for those of your listeners uh, that want to Google Al-Hila, it's really interesting. 
it used to be the capital of Babylon. So here we are going to the, the centre of the, the birth of civilization as we know it and little offs going there with a bucket case of money to try and, and build projects. But as happens in life, things change. I landed in Iraq and got told, listen, it's getting a little bit hairy down there, Toff. The other night we're about to be run over by insurgents. So I think we're going to reassign you to somewhere a bit safer. So I actually got a seven-month posting in Baghdad and worked for a four-star American general. So those are my highlights, very different. And I might come back a bit later on in terms of the significance of the Iraq deployment regarding engineering. Working in a country one under war must be tough and also the whole rebuilding process. I don't think most Australians even understand what that might very well be like. It was funny, but I've got to say, and a lot of Australians who have now deployed there in the thousands would be able to associate with this, is that when I got there in, in 2004, of course, the war was previous year in 2003 and, and Baghdad was devastated and much of the provinces were also in disrepair. My task really was to, to do no more than do a bunch of planning and staff work, make sure that the bucket of money that was being spent by the combat forces worked on different projects to the bucket of money that was coming from foreign affairs or their treasury, I guess. Realistically, my task was to come up with a whole bunch of plans to make sure we had projects underway. And that was really, really gratifying. From an engineering point of view, it meant every day would be about trying to rebuild bridges or reopen schools or put in a new gas turbine for a power station. Really exciting projects that contributed tangibly to re-establishment of society in a war-torn country. And not only a war-torn country, and I guess this would be really interesting for your audience as well, is talk about overcoming war. But the same sort of thing happens when you've had a regime that hasn't looked after its people. Very humbling experience. I'd meet Iraqi kids. They'd try to sell me chewing gum. And I'd say, how come you're not at school? 10-year-old kid. Oh, I try to make money for my family. It just gets you right, you know, right in your heart. All this kid wants to do is go to school. All his parents want to do is go to work. Yet they've got to be, uh, they're in a war-torn country, so we're there to help them. So that was really, really humbling and, and a terrific advertisement for engineering, everybody. You want to help the world get back on its feet? Do engineering. We'll come back to a quieter place for a moment. I've always wondered, what's it like to work on a submarine? That's always been an intriguing environment that I've been interested in. The very first night, picture going on board a submarine, done your training ashore, and you may have had it one or two days at sea just to get familiar. This is the first night actually being part of the crew. And you know nothing, and everybody from the chef to the captain tells you you know nothing. So that's your first introduction on board a submarine. Welcome on board. You know nothing. But it sailed and the, the submarine was HMAS Otway. And for those that travel between Sydney and Melbourne, you will be able to see HMAS Otway. It is a profile submarine that is in the town called Holbrook. So that was my very first submarine, my very first boat. And we sailed from HMAS Platypus out Sydney Harbour and we we're on our trip to New Zealand. And it was the very first dive. And it was already nighttime, Mike. It was black outside. They went to this very strange lighting in the submarine called red lighting. And I thought, oh, my God, you know. So it's like a inside of a theatre whereby there's nothing but red. And so that, that allows your eyes to start getting acclimatised to the darkness outside. And then you eventually go to what's known as black lighting, now, which is a really contradiction in terms. Right? How can you have black lighting? Well, pretty much it's just no lighting at all. And so your eyes got to get tuned. And the reason for that is because when you dived, the person on the periscope needs to be able to acclimatise his, his eyesight, obviously, to the darkness outside. So the inside of the submarine needs to also be dark. So that was my first experience. And then we had to dive the submarine. And the first time you're diving as part of the crew, submarines dive because they get heavy. How do they get heavy? Because these things called main vents open on the ballast tank. Water rushes in, fills up the ballast tank. 
air rushes out and there's this almighty roar of air all around you, even when you're in, in, inside the submarine. And then you feel the sensation of going down and down and down and down. First experience of diving in a, in a submarine as part of the crew was, was really exciting and scary at the same time. Eventually, after the day one, day two, you, you get into a bit of routine and then you start getting used to the other 75 people on board the boat in a tin can that's no more than 300 metres long, about eight and a half metres wide, full of equipment. You go in a submarine, there's open valves, there's pipe work, there's switches, there's buttons. The first time you get trained in a submarine, it's understanding what all those things are because you don't want to be a person that just walks around and all of a sudden inadvertently opens the wrong valve, right, because that could be you know, a disaster. So the first thing they teach you is know all your valves, know all your piping systems, know all your emergency routines. Once you've got that weight off, then you can start trusted by the others that you, you probably know a little bit about submariners and a little bit more safe than when you were when you first walked on board. Very exciting, scary at the same time, but camaraderie is uh, second to none. I had my time again, I'd, I'd, I'd do the same thing. The friends you make are lifelong mates, and I think it was, just, it was a great career. One simple little question that came to mind, do you get seasick in a submarine? This is the amazing thing. If you get seasick, join submarines because submarines don't rock around on the surface. They dive and stay stable. So when we're actually exercising with surface ships and it's really, really rough up top, they, they tell you to be quiet, but you know, most, most times you'll probably hear a bunch of submarine crews laughing because they're laughing at all the surface guys getting seasick while you're, you're quite, quite happy below the waves. So no. There's 80 people on the boat? Oh, it depends on the on the type of boat. The Oberons that I served on, we went around normally with 76 to 80 people, depending on how many trainees you had on board. The new modern-day Collins-class submarines, if memory serves me right, were designed for 46, but they might travel around with, you know, 56 to 60 people on a regular basis, again, depending on how many trainees. You know, one of the critical things about submarines is that it, it's so niche. We've got so that bunk space for trainees is always a premium. So, you know, we, we, we carry as many as we can to, to make sure to train the next generation. So it must be basically a floating city or a mobile city. Everything has to happen for however long you're underwater. I think you could probably say that to a lot of maritime vessels and ships that go to sea. I mean, the biggest platform that I've ever been on board has actually been a surface ship in the U.S. Navy, what they call a Ticonderoga cruiser. I forget how many people it carries on board. Probably close to 800 to 1,000 people. Of course, their aircraft carriers carry about five to 6,000, so they are real cities. Submarines, it's more like a village than a city. Kind of get your personalities and your characters, and, and because you've only got that 100 metres or the 80 metres in the Collins class to walk down, you're clearly very close with, with people on board. You, you do have everything you need. Do we shower twice a day? Probably not. I'm not so sure in the, the Collins space, but certainly in the old Oberon boats, um, brushing your teeth once a week was like, yeah, it was like having a bath, really. I know that sounds disgusting to your, to your listeners, but hygiene is, is top of the priority if you're in the Navy. Do our best, but clearly when you dive days and weeks, it's a challenge to maintain your hygienic clothing, I guess. But we, we do shower. The chefs definitely shower every day, maybe twice a day, because they're, they're handling foodstuffs. And then probably the next category of people that get to shower on a submarine is probably your technicians who are sweating when they're on watch, going through the engine room and crawling through bilges and all those sorts of things. So there's a bit of a, not a picking order, but there's a bit of an order in terms of who get luxury of, of having a shower. That was certainly the case in the Oberons, I think, and the Collins class pretty much. 
with the distillers they've got on board and the first osmosis machines just not as strictly controlled, I suspect, as they were in the old submarines. I was once told that they hand out a lot of deodorant on a submarine called diesel. Yeah, it's the kind of deodorant that, that wives and girlfriends don't really <laughs> really gravitate to when you come back alongside, I'm afraid. <laughs> it does have an odour to it, that's for sure. I've always maintained it's not just the diesel, it's also the air conditioning system has a, has, you know, has a, has a waft about it. And we talk about you know, personal separation and, and hygiene in, in a COVID-19 environment. I guarantee even submariners today would have no problems at all in people staying away from them. So if we jump back to um, engineering for a minute, a marine engineer on a submarine has a whole, there's a whole series of jobs. You've got to maintain this floating city, if that's the term. And there's also a lot of engineers back on dock looking after that or keeping it operational. What's the link between the engineers on the boat and the engineers back on, on the deck? That's a really great question because I think it's a question that actually talks to the teammanship of military units. I might just set this up in a couple of ways. Firstly, yeah, there is a there is a link. So engineering at sea on a submarine or a ship linked to the engineers ashore, they're all part of what I call the technical chain and a technical chain of responsibility. The difference being though is that when you're a, an engineer on board a ship or a submarine, you really only have your own ship or submarine to worry about. And don't get me wrong, life's not easy at sea. It is very hard, very difficult. You are separated from your loved ones for weeks, days, months, and it's tough. But I think from an engineering point of view, and I can't speak for the other categories, but certainly as an engineer, my view is that life's a lot simpler at sea than it is ashore. Now, I've been an engineer across the board in both submarines and also in surface ships, both at sea and in like squadron or headquarter positions. And the difference would be that when I was in a headquarters position, I'd have six submarines to look after. And so the work never really goes away. You're forever dealing with problems and making decisions for the good of that particular submarine or for the good of the broader squadron or the broader fleet. You're there to maintain standards. You might see ride to maintain those standards. So your focus isn't really on a single boat or ship or platform, your focus then is on the overall engineering capability at sea, which means that when you're a commander ashore and you're in charge of engineering ashore, you've, you've got a lot on your plate and the problems don't go away. I actually preferred my time at sea, being an engineer of a ship. You knew that you were away when the, the lines let go and you went on your deployment, you know, that the head engineers ashore, they couldn't get hold of you. Well, they couldn't in the old days, they can now with emails, but you were on your own sort of floating castle, and your, as you say, your own city and the only authority that you had to answer to was the captain. I've been blessed in having really good captains. But when you're ashore in an engineering position, I think all those problems are multiplied by the number of platforms that you have to look after. I, I remember more than 10 occasions whereby I would sit down to a meal and I remember this one particular occasion it was my anniversary and we had some friends over and it was here in WA and, and at the time I was what's known as the squadron marine engineer. So I was the marine engineer looking after the standards and engineering across the flotilla if you like and of course I got a phone call just as I sat down to have a nice anniversary meal with my wife and I think although there were many 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 occasions like that that's the one that I think that rose me continually my dear wife continually reminds me of the squadron commander pulls up in my driveway and we go to the squadron and we meet a submarine that has just recently surfaced because it's got some real problems and defects and we spend the next few hours on a Saturday night helping the submarine crew fix them. So you multiply that six times by the number of boats that you've got in the squadron or by the number of ships in, in the flotilla or in, in, in the fleet, then you've got an idea of just how busy an engineer's life ashore could be. 
you're raising this year and maintaining equipment all through your career the whole time and, and you've got a clear understanding of the role of maintenance that plays in sustainability and performance on, on a submarine or a ship. But, but I don't think most people understand the importance of the maintenance process beyond getting their car serviced, you know, the number of people involved um, in maintenance, the complexity involved in maintenance and the complexity of maintaining equipment and technology. And when you were talking there, I was just picking up on the failure mode analysis and, and the numbers of spares you would carry. And I mean, there's so much there. I don't, most kids don't know there's so many roles just involved in maintaining things that are really quite critical. Goodness, where do I start? You've mentioned failure mode analysis of just one metric that allows you to actually manage stuff. So broadening this out and making it really, really nice and easy to understand, I suppose. The thing that about maintenance engineering, what I like to call operational engineering, is that it is all about making sure that you've got the right people with the right tools, working on the right equipment, with the right training, to make sure that that whole machinery is able to go away and do stuff and then come home safely. Maintenance engineers, certainly in a Navy context, and certainly in my view, it's quite an honourable profession. We're there not just to make sure things go around, but we're there to make sure that people come home safely. For me, it's always what's driven me about maintenance and operational engineering. It's, it's always been about the material or technical safety of the equipment. Some of your listeners might grow up to become design engineers, and that's, that's fine. And you need design engineers to design stuff. But A, that's where all the cost is. So you could build something for 10 million bucks and it might cost you 30 million bucks to actually maintain it over the next 10 or 15 years. But it's also about making sure that material is safe. So oftentimes, I'll give you an example, I guess. We had one particular occasion in the Gulf, again, on board HMAS Anzac, where, you know, things were just, you know, because of the heat, we were there during the summer months. As a, as a maintenance engineer on board the ship, my task was really to make sure that the captain can complete his mission safely. One of the things that we do is think on our feet. We become creative, do the best we can with the equipment that we have. And in this one particular instance, because we would need a certain amount of high pressure air to start up your gas turbine engines, just so happened that my diesel engines at the time were also suffering from a bit of heat exhaustion and we're having some problems on both the port and starboard diesels. We're reliant on the gas turbine to be able to get to 30-odd knots to chase the bad guys. And my HPS system, which is at, at 4,000 pounds per square inch, was also acting up. We had to somehow supplement the ability to start up the gas turbine. We ended up actually hooking up diving air compressor to top up the high-pressure air system on board the ship to be able to give that oomph to the gas turbine in order for it to, to kick off and start. That was a good example of how my team thought laterally to safely readjust systems to be able to achieve an end effect to allow us to stay at sea and therefore carry out our tasking that was given to us by our country to stay on station and achieve the mission and then come home alongside safely. It's that sort of stuff that naval engineers do every day of the week. I grew up myself in the maintenance, a number of maintenance roles and, and even though we got to the point went on a production line going along and measuring sound of all the bearings and so we, so, so we could determine when bearings were going to fail beforehand. And so, so what seemed like a fix the bonnet kind of job ended up being incredibly technical, measuring sound on bearings and doing research and doing a whole lot of things. So the, the process of being maintaining is not just maintaining, it's about designing and creating solutions and solving problems. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Mike. I think, you know, as, a, as an operational maintenance engineer, what we do is actually create solutions. We solve problems, but we have to do it in a very safe way. And the other thing I might add is the reason why I'm very passionate about this subject and why I'm passionate about my job, hopefully that your listeners can get a whiff of how passionate I am, is that it is that safety bit. 
you can sit on the TV these days and you can you can sit on uh, reality shows about accidents. Um, you really need to sit down and watch and listen to those shows because sometimes those shows point towards really poor practices in how things were being maintained that led to a poor decision, that led to something falling off, that led to people being really hurt. That's the sort of thing that drives me to make sure that I do the best that I can as a maintenance engineer to make sure that my people know exactly what's a good decision so that therefore we can put good solutions in place so that lives are preserved and potentially can be saved. It's amazing how many problems compound themselves when someone forgets to do something and someone forgets to do something else. I remember when I was doing engineering, we read the Royal Commission into the Westgate Bridge disaster. Just a sequence of events that when you see them all separately, there's there's separate problems that you would never even worry about. But when they all come together, all of a sudden you've got a bridge that collapses and and I'm sure it will be just as worse in a submarine or a ship anyway. If we move to what your current role is now, you're you're, um, the Managing Director of JFD Australia. Could you give us an overview of the kind of things that you're involved in now that you're out of the Navy? I've got to say it's a really exciting little company and I would say that, wouldn't I? We basically do three things and it's all all underwater. Go figure, an ex-submariner in a business that's got to do with underwater stuff. We are a contractor, so a civilian organisation that provides submarine rescue service to the Royal Australian Navy Submarine Force. And we do that through a contract with the Department of Defence. What that means is that I have a bunch of people and a bunch of assets that I have to be at 12 hours notice to move. And any given day, I need to be ready to move within 12 hours or get my gear out within 12 hours to be able to go to a site whereby a disabled submarine might be sitting on the bottom of the, uh, the ocean. So we provide that service. In fact, my team's actually quite busy at the moment, Mike. We're preparing for the annual exercise with the Royal Australian Navy. That happens in a few weeks' time. And really, that's really gratifying, particularly for me as an old submariner, being able to be in a business whereby one of our key jobs is actually to save submariners. We pray our service never needing to be used. I think there's been some really examples in the past. In 2000, the anniversary or commemoration of the the Russian submarine Kursk. Of course, in 2017, the Argentinian submarine San Juan was lost off the east coast of Argentina with about 46, 48 people. So it's it's a very dangerous environment. And so for us to be able to help out and be on the ready to save submariners, we are extremely proud of of that, very passionate about it. Our task really is to maintain the submersible. I liken our submersible to like the old Thunderbird 4, right? Gordon in the yellow submarine coming out of Thunderbird 2. And I'm sure your audiences are going to relate to that, but it's a little bit bigger than the old Thunderbird 4. It's got two pilots and a, and a crew member, and then they'll, they'll come down and they'll mate with the submarine. They'll equalise the pressure with the submarine pressure. They'll open hatches, and then we'll take 16 submariners at a time to the surface and to safety. So that's what we train to do, and there's a whole bunch of equipment that's related with that. We also do teach the submariners how to escape from their, their submarines at the moment. So I've got 16 divers that help. Uh, put together a course and instruct Australian submariners how to escape from the Collins-class submarine. The second thing that we do, it's very, very cool. We work with a number of Australian Defence Forces Special Operations Units that specialise in undersea. We provide them and maintain what we call rebreathers. If you're a scuba diver, scuba stands for self-contained underbreathing apparatus, but it's actually an open circuit, so you breathe in the air from the cylinder and you breathe out and gives out bubbles. In a rebreather, you breathe in whatever mixed gas you have, 
and then you exhale back into the circuit. Your exhaled air then gets scrubbed of the carbon dioxide, and so therefore you can rebreathe what you're exhaling. It has two advantages. One, it, it can extend the amount of time you can stay on water, but why special forces like it is because it doesn't give off any bubbles. And so the special forces guys can actually swim wherever they have to go without being detected. And then to complete the trifecta, no diving operation would be complete without a chamber. So we also, through a a company that we bought in 2018 based in Newcastle, we actually manufacture what's known as hyperbaric treatment chambers. In the event that a diver gets decompression illness or the bends, uh, we can actually treat them by surfacing them very slowly back to the surface of the water. So we do those three things, submarine rescue, rebreathers and specialist diving equipment and uh, treatment chambers. There must be a lot of science and maths and things involved in all of the things that you're doing now. I mean, I can think of a thousand different careers that would be attached to the kind of work that you're doing. Even things like, and this is probably my weakest subject because I am a mechanical engineer, but say, for example, in our treatment chambers, you've got a diver or a submariner at a certain depth. The calculations and the formulas associated with how you then take that person that's been pressurized, so they've got nitrogen in their body, and the definition of the beds is that you know, the nitrogen comes out in bubbles, and so it gives them you know, aches and pains. So to stop that from happening, you've actually got to slowly surface the person from whatever depth they're at to atmospheric pressure. The maths associated with what we call the dive tables to do that safely, it's a combination of maths and pressures and uh, as well as the medical aspects. So we don't profess to be experts at that. So when we actually have to use our chambers for that purpose, we get the NAPE medical doctors who are professionally trained to use the sort of tables that we need to use to then apply the right pressures at the right times. And so that's associated with how long do you keep, keep a patient at a certain depth before you then increase the depth or decrease the pressure. You're right, there's just the mass in operating it, let alone the mass associated with, say, designing a submersible that can go to 400 metres. You know, it needs to be a certain thickness, it needs to be a certain material, it needs to have a certain type of propulsion, a lot of engineering, a lot of maths, a lot of technical careers associated with what we do. You know, I'm hearing you say a lot of project management and in a sense uh, the engineers and the project managers are controlling the project and they're pulling in the doctors and the scientists and the technicians on all the different areas to turn around and create a solution to a problem. We've actually got one project which I, which I can't talk about too much, but we've actually got a project with the Defence Science and Technology Group whereby we're actually pulling in 11 components, if you like, as the prime project manager to deliver this particular capability to Defence and Science Technology Group. I've got a pretty good project management competency in the business as well. These days, a lot of people talk about career change and life going through career change, and and sometimes career changes can be a stressful exercise, and you've made a jump from uh, the Navy, which is a very fairly organised thing, into a commercial environment, and you must have come across some of the complexities of that change management. Is there any kind of advice that you could give kids in terms of if they're going to choose a career, how they should think about a career for planning a future that may change? Great question. I don't know how one would do this, but I think it's not about where you work anymore and it's not about a set career. I think it's about a skill. The advice that I'd give students at the moment, it would be, and I give the same advice to my, I've got two sons, you know, one's 27, one's 24. One spent six years in the army is now trying to become a paramedic. Another one is a ballet dancer in Europe. So very different lads. So the advice that I gave, pick a trade and profession that if you're passionate about it and you can make a quid, then fantastic. 
But if you're like the rest of us who are mere mortals, pick something that, that you know that can be used in, in different areas. So it's now more about picking up a profession or a trade or a skill that you can use offshore, that you can use in a hospital, that you can use in a ship. To me, it's now more about adaptability. It, it's about choose a profession, trade or skill set competency that has many applications. A really good example, and, and I know it's a medical one, my son who is ex-army, he's now choosing a paramedical degree and will become a paramedic at some point in the not too distant future. But when I started researching as a father does about, is this going to be a really good opportunity for my son? And finding out, you know what, this kid can pretty much go anywhere with such a degree and such a skill set. He can go off to Africa and help uh, anti-poaching people who are doing patrols in the Serengeti because they need paramedics in case their patrol gets hurt. He can go offshore on all regular platform. He can be in the winter months, go to a ski resort. He can be a paramedic on a cruise liner. He's chosen a skill set and a profession that can literally take him anywhere and he intends for it to do that. My advice is that if you have a passion and ability to do something and can make a bit of it, Fantastic, go for that. If, however, you, you want some uh, a bit more realistic, then then choose a trade and skill that can take you anywhere. The second advice I'd give students would be language is really important these days. So if you can pick up a second language and talk to people, that would really, really help you too. So to, regardless of what you choose to do, my other advice is that English is a great language. It's the widest second language on the planet. But if you can learn another first language, then doors will open and it's all about opening doors so pick a skill set and competency that you can adapt to anywhere and on top of that see whether you can learn another language i'm going to come off script here for a second what i hear you saying is the importance of communication and problem solving seems to rush through everything that you're doing and they seem to be like the foundation drivers on which you can put lots of things on top of that and and, and i'm going to be bold enough to say that engineering is nearly moving into the foundation degree that people should have because it does give you a lot of those foundations that you can do anything you'd like afterwards I would absolutely subscribe to that. I think when you go off and do your, your engineering degree, when I was doing my year 12 and dad said, right, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a pilot. He said, what? Why do you want to be a bus driver in the sky? Apologies to all the pilots out there. I thought long and hard about that. I thought, okay, well, he's talking about getting something that's much more foundation that can allow you to build something in case things don't go to plan. And certainly engineering has been that for me. After nearly 23 years in the Navy, I went to work with another major computer company and then doors haven't naturally opened, but because of the skill set that I could apply. And then on top of that, you put in some management and some leadership and some communications. All of a sudden, people sort of are interested in what you can offer. I owe all of that because of the foundation of engineering. Like all good engineers, I took five years to do a four-year degree. So I spent my fifth year wisely and learnt about how best to actually use this new language of engineering to actually build a career. And I deliberately looked at where I could use that and apply it. I looked at mining, I looked at car and automotive industry, finally chose the Defence Force. And I finally chose Navy. And this might be a little good story as well. I went to the Defence Force recruiting and I, I, sent, I went to, the, to the, the Army desk and I said, hey, how do you guys use your engineers? And they told me. And I said, oh, that sounds really cool, but I probably don't want to be spending all my time fixing tanks or trucks. You know, thanks very much. So I went to the Air Force guy. I said, how do you guys use your engineers? I said, well, mate, you know, unless you're an aeronautical engineer, you're not going to touch the airplanes. I mean, you'll be doing other stuff. I said, oh, but if I join the Air Force, I'll be wanting to play with the airplane, surely. He said, oh, no, no, no. 
I don't mean to be dismissive of the other two services. God forbid I'll get a phone call from the Chief of Defence shortly. So I went to the Navy guy, and there's this Navy lieutenant all by himself, and I said, what, what do your engineers do? And he goes, oh, what do our engineers do? I am one. I'll tell you what we do. And he opened up his book, and he said, you could go to sea on a ship, you could go to sea on a submarine, you could do this. And I said, hang on a second. So the engineer would actually go with the crew to where it operates. And he said, absolutely. And I said, where do I sign up? From that moment onwards, it wasn't about engineering. It was about, hey, here's an organization that uses engineering amongst all its skill sets to achieve an objective. And the other services do that too. Don't get me wrong. But I just felt that as an engineer, I would direct contribution towards meeting those those aims. And here we are today. My father had a manufacturing business and when I finished engineering, I turned up at the door and said, okay, you know, where can I where can I start designing? And he handed me a broom and said, go and sweep the floor. And while you're out there, talk to all the workers, find out what you need to do to help them. And that's probably the best bit of advice I've, I've ever had. So you do have to do a bit of apprenticeship. And, and this is where being a Navy engineer is a little bit different from the others as well, is that you don't magically roll up onto a ship and be the deputy engineer the most humbling piece of this my whole career and the, the piece that I hold more dearly is that my best teachers were the sailors that in two three four months time I would be the boss of and yet they were my best teachers so you know I love that I love the fact that we had to get down and dirty with the sailors to really learn the trade first albeit for only a couple of months maybe whereas they spend a whole lifetime doing what they do again the other piece about being an engineer I think it is humbling it is a humbling profession. You can't pretend to be the best engineer in 10 navies and fix everyone's problems without actually understanding what that young sailor does day in, day out to keep that engine going. That's pretty humbling. So if you talk to students about choosing a career path, is that important that they chase a passion or do they chase, what should they be chasing in choosing a career? Like all of us when we leave high school at 17, 18, do we... Do we actually know what we're passionate about? You know, might be passionate about going surfing, might be passionate about cricket, might be passionate about footy. There's only a small percentage of people that can get do jobs and, and then quit out of those sorts of things. So, but I think passionate is something that you actually grow. You know, people say, oh, you've, you've never spent any time in, in Canberra or hardly any time in Canberra in another career. You've never really been in the design office. It hasn't been from my want. It hasn't been by design of me. It's just well, I've ended up either being you know, at sea or directly supporting those that go to sea. And uh, and over the time, I've actually developed this passion being an operational, what I call an operational engineer or a maintenance engineer. There, there is a nobility in, in keeping things going. And I think my passion has grown over time, Mike. I haven't woken up with being a passionate maintenance engineer. It has grown because I've known that, that I can help, that it's probably my strength. People come to me for advice in that field and so it feeds itself but passion is whether you're appointed passion or whether you're born with passion for a certain thing or whether you grow that passion without a doubt passion has to be one of the major fuels and that keeps you going it's not just for your career it's for your life as well so i think i hear saying you don't have to make a decision at day one but maybe the more experiences that you hit on all of a sudden you'll start to find your passion oh, absolutely and i think that's why i think a lot of organizations even the defense force these days you know they give a year's gap year, don't they? Try it before you buy it. That would be my big advice. And the fantastic thing about these days, being a 16, 17-year-old about to leave high school, is that there's an amazing resource called the internet. You can virtually try anything you want these days and then and then maybe decide to do things for real. Even when you decide to do things for real, it doesn't have to be forever. The beauty about life these days, it is so dynamic. It's an old adage, I know. It's a bit of a cliche. The world is definitely a smaller place. I'm, I'm glad that my sons have grown up in a world where one son is a ballet dancer in, in Europe, 
and my other son is uh, is likely to become a paramedic in the US. This is the world we live in today. Don't be constrained by blinkers. Don't be constrained by, oh, that's how it used to be. Go out and have a taste. Let your passion take you to a skill set and a competency that you can therefore adapt and use in a, a variety of areas. Find happiness. And the last thing I thought I'd say to my boys is that whatever you do in life, be nice. People like nice people. At the end of the day, you can be the best engineer for 50 years, but you're not remembered for being a nice person, then you're just not going to be remembered. So be nice. Two questions, I'm going to push you a little bit. One, how would you describe, in a short sentence, one might say, engineering to someone who knows nothing about it? So I'm trying to get you to summarize the essence of engineering. To me, engineering is almost the art with a bit of maths and science to take an idea and make it a reality for everyone's good. Agree totally with that one. And any words of wisdom that you might give to a student starting out or in this instance a, a teacher who might be advising a student on how they should consider or look at careers? In addition to all those other things that I said about you know, picking a competency and being passionate and, and choosing something that can be adaptable and used in, in a different array of environments, geographies and, and actual workplaces, I think a couple of things stand to mind. Whatever you choose, commit yourself. Convince yourself that once you've chosen the path that you've done it your, your absolute best. Unless, of course, you, know, you get to a point where you go, you know what, this is not really me and no matter how much I try harder and harder, I'm just going to hurt someone and it's probably going to be myself. So stop, don't go any further, but convince yourself that you've given something your best shot that without a doubt. So that's about resilience. It's about courage. It's about integrity. It's about commitment. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, one of the things that I've learned in life and engineering has brought this home as well is that those that shrink into the corner and don't like to make decisions stay below the parapet probably aren't going to be the great contributors. Why learn this fantastic language and skill put in engineering if you're not actually going to contribute and, and offer something? So stand up and be counted because, you know, it's only those that stand up to be, that are brave enough to be counted are the only ones who count at the end of the day. So be one of those. And the last one is I had a mentor once upon a time (laughs) and he taught me quite a few, few classics, Mike, but one of the ones that he he taught me, and and this is, this is good for an engineer because I think engineering closely strides beside safety and quality. Learn how to write. If it's not in writing, it never happened. And again, there's no point having the best best ideas in your head if you don't know how to write or communicate it. Learn how to write, learn how to write well. It's not just about grammar, it's about using the right words and the right tone so you communicate your ideas across. Because once if you communicate your ideas across, then goodness knows you might get together with a couple of other engineers and actually make it reality. Fantastic. Your experiences and uh, the stuff in the Navy you spoke about is uh, really aligned with everything that I've understood. And I'm, I'm glad you love engineering as much as we do. So but, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. And, and we might generate another reason to have another conversation soon. Absolutely. Can I just say um, a plug for the Reengineering Australia Foundation's doing a fantastic job. Reengineering Australia is all about repowering and reju- rejuvenating, I guess, our, our country as well, Mike in hard times and the times to come. So uh, re-injuring Australia, everyone. No worries. Thanks very much, Todd. Cheers, Mike.